2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from the perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Good morning again. (laughs) Haruki Murakami is a fictional novelist, but he is also a long-distance runner. He loves running so much that he wrote a book about it called... What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. In one chapter of the book, Mr. Murakami records his experience running an ultramarathon. Okay, not a marathon, an ultramarathon. An ultramarathon is for those people who ran a marathon and afterwards thought to themselves, I probably could have run more than that. Technically, an ultramarathon is anything longer than 26.2 miles. The ultramarathon Mr. Murakami tried to run was 62 miles. I get exhausted driving 62 miles. Can't imagine running it. Has anyone here run an ultramarathon? Okay. So for those at home watching, every single hand was raised. That was me. I'm just kidding. It was not. Someone said someone has. All right. Well, there's an excerpt from his book I want to share for, your, for you guys. Um, this is in the middle of the ultramarathon he's, uh, he's writing about. Um, after Mr. Murakami had already ran 37 miles, uh, he had taken a short break to eat a snack and stretch. And so he describes now how his body was responding. Let me read that for you. As soon as I set off again, I realized something was wrong. My leg muscles had tightened up like a piece of hard old rubber. I had plenty of desire to run, but my legs had their own opinions about this. I gave up on my disobedient legs and started focusing on my upper body. I swung my arms wide as I ran, making my upper body swing, transmitting the momentum to my lower body. Using that momentum, I was able to force my legs forward. After the race, though, my wrists were swollen. Then my whole body started rebelling. It felt like a car trying to go up a slope with the parking brake on. I was rapidly slowing down, as one runner after another passed me. A tiny old lady around 70 years old passed me and shouted, Hang on! Man alive. What was going to happen the rest of the way? There were still 25 miles left to go. The Christian walk in life has often been compared to a race because of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I think we can ask 
that same question, what is going to happen the rest of the way? How am I going to finish this race that God has set out before me? When life gets hard, how do we continue to live faithful lives as followers of Christ? Now, that's a question we ask ourselves. It's certainly a question that the Thessalonian church would have asked itself amidst all the opposition that it endured. And we are in the final chapter of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Paul is writing from the city of Corinth to a church in Thessalonica that he was forced to leave just a little while earlier. He's writing to a church that has been very faithful, but has undergone persecution and has been deceived by people pretending to be Paul and Silas. Their faith had been shaken. So Paul writes to them, reminding them of the truth they taught to them, especially about the end times, about the victory of Christ, and encouraging them to depend on the word of the Lord that was given to them. And that's where we left off last week. So we'll begin today in chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Okay, again, now Paul's in the last part of his letter, and he's going to be addressing a very practical issue in chapter 3. But he doesn't do that yet. Before he gives that one last practical instruction, he asks for prayer. And that's what these first two verses are. They're Paul explained to the church how they can pray for him. Indeed, he wants them not only to pray once, but to, to continue praying for him. And again, he calls the people in this church, he does it all the time, he calls them brethren, or brothers and sisters. And you see that in Paul's lang- uh, letters. He uses this family language to describe uh, his fellow believers in Christ. They are brothers and sisters to him. He is a father to them, a mother. They are children, this family language. Now, Paul has done this before. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, he requested prayer, okay? So Paul recognizes the importance of prayer, even from people who are, who are very new Christians. He wants their prayer. Now, you might think that it might be the opposite. Like, Paul would just be telling them, this is how um, you should be praying, and this is how I'm going to be praying for you. I imagine their response might be something like, uh, like John the Baptist's response to Jesus, you know, when, John, when Jesus told John the Baptist he wanted him to baptize him, Jesus said, you want, or John the Baptist said, you want me to baptize you? No, it's, it's I that needs to be baptized by you. And maybe the Thessalonians were thinking, you want us to pray for you? We need you to pray for us. But Paul recognizes the importance and the, and the power of prayer from other Christians. It doesn't matter how long they've been Christians or where they are in their walk. He wants them to pray for him. And that's true for all of us. We all need prayer from other Christians. We need it. And Paul asked them to pray for two things. First, that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified. Okay, And the word of the Lord, of course, is 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so this is a phrase that you see a lot in the Old Testament. The, it refers to the prophets, the word of the Lord given to the prophets, and the message they're supposed to give to the people. John the Baptist has a word um, from the Lord, and then we have Jesus's message that he's giving, and then now the apostles have a message that they're giving and sending out, and the Thessalonians have that message that they are supposed to share and are supposed to spread to everyone around them. He's used the same phrase in the in First Thessalonians chapter one, and he described the gospel as ringing out to all the cities surrounding Thessalonica. It's it's like a trumpet blast or a peal of thunder, something that is resounding in the ears of everyone around the city because of the faithfulness of the Thessalonican church. Here, he wants the gospel to spread rapidly. Now, this is a running, racing term. It's the word Paul uses in his letter to the Corinthians when he tells them to faithfully run the race. Okay, so he's personifying the gospel as a runner. Maybe he has in mind the, uh, the Isthmian Games in the city of Corinth. Okay, that's an Olympic-type game um, that Paul would have been familiar with because he lived in Corinth for quite a while. Paul prays that the gospel would run fast, would run well, and that wherever it goes, it would receive a glorious reception. Okay, this is continuing that uh, running theme. Uh, he still has in mind this picture of a runner, of an athlete who is being crowned and cheered when he victoriously arrives at the end of a race. So that's how the church at Thessalonica received the gospel. Like it was something worth celebrating, something worth honoring, worth glorifying, and ultimately even worth suffering for. All right, so Paul first wishes for them to pray that whoever delivers the good news does it with the conviction and determination of a runner, and that it is received like the best news in the world that it is. Then Paul wants them to pray accordingly in verse 2, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Paul seems to have something specific in mind when he's saying this. These are men who are perverse and evil. Okay, perverse here um, is referring to something out of place, something wrong, something improper. These men, these are men that are not behaving like they ought to behave, even if they disagree with Paul. These are men who are Wicked, that is, they act in contrast to God's ways and God's desires. Now again, does Paul have something specific in mind? I, I believe so. If we look at Paul's time in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 17, or 18, excuse me, we see glimpses of what happened to Paul. We don't see all of it. There's certainly a lot more, but we see glimpses. And apparently things got so bad that Paul at one point um, was so discouraged that he was afraid to even share the gospel. Acts 18 says this, verses 5 through 6. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Okay, so there's one instance of when uh, the Jews he was preaching to were 
resisting and blaspheming him. And then later on, we hear about how they take him to the authorities and try to get him kicked out of the city, just like in Thessalonica, right? It's like the same thing's happening again. But maybe the Thessalonians' prayers had an impact here. Because we see a few verses later in Acts, the Lord comforts Paul so he can continue preaching the gospel. Acts 18, 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And as a result, Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So here's an instant where Paul had been experiencing resistance, persecution, massive discouragement. The Lord gives him strength, and the Lord um, protects him and encourages him to continue on. The Lord is faithful to Paul, and we see immediately in the next verse in our passage, it's as if Paul was anticipating that response from the Lord in the book of Acts. All right, verse 3. It says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Okay? Men can be perverse. Men can be wicked. Men can be faithless. But the Lord is not like men. The Lord is faithful. Okay, so Paul intentionally and immediately contrasts the faithlessness of men with the faithfulness of God. And the faithfulness of God is greater. The faithlessness of men cannot possibly overcome the faithfulness of God. Now, the faithfulness of God is a consistent theme, obviously, in this book, especially in the Old Testament. In fact, I remember when we were studying the book of Genesis in Sunday school, I'm getting to teach through that and talk, talk through that, um, I remember how much we heard about God's loyal love. It was a consistent phrase and throughout the Old Testament, God's loyal love, his covenantal love, his love that keeps his promises. Um, God keeps his promises. The one that he made to Abraham, he remembers even when Abraham is gone and he continues on from generation to generation and he keeps the promise no matter how many generations have passed, no matter, no matter how many years have passed. He is faithful to keep those promises. It's really amazing when you're looking at it in the detail that we were looking at it in Sunday school. It was really great. Um, he keeps his promises. He never forgets them. In God's faithfulness, he will strengthen the Thessalonian church, and he will protect them from the evil one. That's what our passage says here. And we already saw in Acts a specific example of how God did this for Paul. He strengthened them and encouraged him that he was still with them, and Paul was able to continue his ministry in the city of Corinth. Now, the evil one uh, refers to Satan, someone Paul has already made reference to in this letter. The enemy of God and the enemy of the church. Now, what Paul is saying here is not that God is going to protect his people from any and all persecution. We know that's not what Paul means because this church was currently already undergoing persecution. Okay, so what, is, what does Paul mean? I believe what Paul means is that he is saying he will not allow this church to become so discouraged from the attacks of Satan that they would fail in their mission. Kind of like Paul in Corinth. He did not allow him to fail in the mission he had given to Paul. 
And we know the church did not fail in its mission because here we are now, almost 2,000 years later, celebrating our Savior in Christ because of what Paul and what the Thessalonians did to spread the gospel of Christ, how God used them. God will strengthen us when we need it, and he will not allow the evil one to succeed against his church. We saw that in chapter 2 as well. Christ ultimately will be victorious over the powers of Satan and over wickedness in this world. And Paul continues in this theme of God's faithfulness. Verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Okay, now this is connected to what's going on in the previous verse. Because the Lord is faithful, because the Lord will strengthen them to continue their work in Christ and protect them from the evil one so that the gospel's progress would not be impeded, because of those things, they have confidence. All right, and to have confidence, it's a verb here, and it usually is uh, meant, it used to mean to persuade. All right, so the idea is that Paul has been so persuaded by something that he's convinced it's true, okay? He's confident. In this case, it's the faithfulness of the Lord to the Thessalonians. The fact that despite losing their leaders in the genesis of the church, and since then constantly being barraged by persecution and lies, this church has remained faithful to the gospel. And Paul gives thanks to God for that. Okay, he did that, he's done that many times already throughout both of the letters to the Thessalonians. God has sustained this church in their faith, in the gospel, in spite of everything. So because of God's faithfulness, faithfulness, something he has already displayed, Paul is convinced that the church will obey the instructions of Paul and his cohorts in this letter. Okay, not because of their capacities, but because of God's faithfulness. He is convinced that they will obey the instructions of Paul, such as standing firm on the gospel that they had given to them previously, standing firm on the instructions that they had given to them previously. And finally, Paul ends with this final exhortation and this blessing to his believers. Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. All right, now this sounds like your basic ending to any passage. But we must not be too quick to glaze over it because it's very important. Now, Paul has used this language of God directing before. All right, He wanted God to direct their way back to the church at Thessalonica because they missed them so much in, the first, in Paul's first letter to them. And Timothy was able to return. Here, Paul wishes for God to direct their hearts. All right, Their hearts... Uh, the center of their whole inner life, everything that they think and feel. Um, God knows the human heart, and he is able to guide it, meaning that if, if our hearts are directed at something else, the circumstances around us, he prays that God would redirect our hearts to him. Paul's prayer is first for God to direct their hearts to the love of God. Okay, And this is the same um, word that we saw last week. Uh, last week when... Uh, Paul talked about the Thessalonian church, and he referred to them as those beloved by the Lord, or those beloved by Christ. It's that same word, though it means someone who is cherished by someone else. And he wants God to direct our hearts to that 
identity is who we are. We are loved by God. How can we be directed or reminded of God's love? We can do that by being directed into Christ's steadfastness. All right? Now, when we think of the word steadfast, we think of something that is reliable and sure, um, a firm and steady rock, which is fine because that is certainly what uh, certainly describes Christ. But I think a more helpful term to, uh, to help us understand what Paul is trying to communicate here is uh, used in other translations, um, perseverance or endurance. I think is the idea that Paul wants to convey here. God wants our hearts to be directed to the endurance of Christ. Okay, so what is the endurance of Christ? Um, Well, the first place I think of when I think of the endurance of Christ, I think of uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, In Matthew, it says that Jesus' soul was deeply grieved as he prepared for the cross, as he was preparing to hang on the cross, and experience the wrath of God. He even prayed to God the Father in that garden that if it was possible that this cup would pass from him. Yet he continued on, and he went to the cross. And upon that cross, he took the punishment of sin that you and I deserved. He endured the cross for you and me. And we know that through that endurance, he was resurrected from the grave and he overcame death and sin. And we know in Paul's letter that because of that, because of his endurance to the cross, that he will one day return and be victorious over all sin and wickedness in the world. So when the Thessalonians are being persecuted and are tempted to give up, Paul wants them to remember God's love for them by directing them in their hearts to the endurance of Christ on the cross. And that's the end of our passage this morning. And so there's one thing that I want you guys to particularly remember that I think this passage is trying to tell us. In the end, relying on the faithfulness of God, we must pray for one another, obey God's word, and be reminded of God's love for us in Christ's endurance through the cross. Um, By the way, Haruki Murakami did finish that ultra marathon. It took him 11 hours and 42 minutes. That's running for 11 hours and 42 minutes. I can't even sleep for that long. All right. And this is how he did it. To get through his body failing him, if you remember, his body was failing him before, to get through that, to continue running, to continue and finish the race, he did this. He focused on the ground three yards ahead of him. You guys have probably heard of this strategy among runners. This is what he says. All I can see is the ground three yards ahead, nothing beyond. My whole world consists of the ground three yards ahead. This is what he's thinking while he's running. No need to think beyond that. The sky, the grass, the cows munching the grass, the spectators, the cheers, the lake, everything. These things mean nothing to me. Just getting past the next three yards. This was my tiny reason for continuing the race. To endure the race, he focused on the next three hours. For us to be able to finish the race that God has set before each one of us, we also must focus on something. But it can't just be anything. It can't just be 
our jobs. Maybe that's why we're continuing on and pushing on because we want to be successful in our work. We want that promotion. But one day our jobs will end. And at some point, they're going to fail us. And if that's the reason we keep continuing on and pushing on, what's going to happen when they're gone? We must focus on Christ in all circumstances of life. Nothing else will get us through the hardships of this life. There's nothing else in this life that will sustain us and no one else who will stick with us like Christ will. He will never abandon us. He is always with us, and he loves us. He demonstrated that on the cross. So let our hearts be directed towards him. Let us remember that Let's remember Christ's endurance through the cross. And may that in turn produce endurance in us for him so that we can continue to live our lives faithfully for him even when life gets hard. Let us remember his endurance through the cross that he conquered sin and death and that we will one day see him face to face and be with him for eternity. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ's work on the cross. God, we thank you that we can look to him in every circumstance of life. And remember that he is with us. And remember that we have a purpose. And remember that he will one day make all things right in the world. And so we live for Christ. Help us to remember that he endured the cross for our sake that he took on the punishment that we deserved on the cross, that the Holy Spirit might dwell within us and might be able to give us the strength and power needed to continue to endure in this life, especially when things get hard. So help us remember Christ, help us remember the cross, what he did for us as we continue to live, Lord. In his name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.